Back to Romans chapter 8, verse 34. And I want to tell you, we're going to finish verse 34 tonight. Um, and we're going to, I have only tonight and next week with you, you know, they let me off for the summer. And actually, they probably let you off for the summer. You, you really get to hear some good teaching all summer. Um, and there is a brochure available to you as to who, the staff will be handling the, the 12 weeks of the summer. There's really 13, but you know, we closed down on Vacation Bible School Week. But um, uh, there's a little brochure. I, I looked for one before. I, I never could find a brochure. And, uh, but if you're interested in what's going on each of those Wednesday nights. Um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish Romans 8 um, between tonight and tomorrow night. So let me, let me refer you to um, uh, just quickly to verse 34 once again, and we'll wrap this up. But notice the, the reason that it's taken us so long is because there's so much crammed. Who is to... Who is, to, who, is, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. So there's, there's the atonement. More than that, who was raised? There's the resurrection. Who was at the right hand of God? We talked about that last week. The, the, the ascension and the session, that is the being seated, the, 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 the position of cosmic authority. Um, and then this last item, or this, the last of the four expressions in this, this one verse is who indeed is interceding for us. A reference to the intercession or the intercessory ministry of Jesus Christ. Um, This is 1 John 2, don't turn. Um, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That is, that role of advocacy that's mentioned in 1 John 2 verse 1 is the whole idea about Jesus interceding. I think the reason that Paul added this, this part of the, um, of the ministry of Christ is to assure you that Jesus is seated on the throne and he's not twiddling his thumbs. Paul understands, I think, that, um, that the people of God are, are going are gonna to question themselves. They're going to rake themselves over the coals when, not if, but when they fall into some serious sin. Uh, so they're going to begin to question their own standing, their own, uh, their own position with Christ. And so by telling you that Jesus is interceding for you, he's assuring you that um, as your Lord, he understands beforehand that you're going to sin. Um, he knew that when he died for you, that uh, you embracing him as your Savior wasn't going to stop you from choosing the, uh, the idiocies of sin. It's perhaps one of the most tender expressions of his love for his people that's mentioned here. That is, that he sees fit to intercede. This advocate pleads our case. If you want to see the best example, I think, of his pleading uh, our case, turn with me to Luke 22. This is just an illustration of his intercessory ministry. Uh, it's something that's fairly familiar to you. You know, um, um, Luke 22, there's not about 24 chapters in Luke, and this is towards the close of Jesus' life, and and, um, you know, he's not yet arrested, but he's close to being arrested. And, and um, 
he turns to him and says, you know, they're going to take me and the sheep are going to scatter and all of you are going to turn and run. And then Peter steps forward and says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, I know they, a lot of them are going to turn on you, Jesus, but not me. You know, John, you know, he's kind of effeminate anyway. And, you know, he's not very... Very manly. He might turn on you. And there's that Nathaniel. He, I mean, he, he couldn't figure things out. And Thomas has always been kind of a doubter. And, and you know, he might he might uh, turn on you. But not me. Not me, Jesus. I mean, those other guys, they're iffy. But you can count on me, Jesus. Because I would never do that. And Jesus turns to him and says in verse 31, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. Which tells you one thing, ladies and gentlemen, it tells you this much, you're no match. Apart from the the sustaining grace of God, you're no match for the evil one. And all this business that you see about, um, (laughs) I never, I I used this story several months ago in the pulpit about the the, uh, national prayer breakfast in in Washington, D.C. and and, uh, the guy that stood up and and said, I command the devil to leave Washington, D.C. And never come back. <laughs> well, I think there is plenty of evidence to prove that that prayer was not answered. Um, I think there's, I think he's still there, folks. But you know, you are no match. But Jesus says about Peter, oh Peter, oh, Peter, Peter. <laughs> you have no idea what's about to happen to you. But here it is: Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. Look at verse thirty-two. But I have prayed. The intercessory role of the Savior. I have prayed for you, Peter. And notice um, that your faith may not fail. And then the next sentence, and if you turn, that's not what it says. It says, and when you turn, when you turn, Peter. I am very confident, Peter, that you're going to turn. And the reason I'm confident is because I prayed for you. I've interceded for you. And I know you're going to blow it. You're going to blow it bad. But I have prayed for you. And when you turn, strengthen the brethren. That's the intercessory role of Jesus Christ, ladies and gentlemen. He's doing it not only for Peter. He's doing it for you. This mediator, this mediator who, back to Romans 8, this is the one who died. This is the one who was raised. This is the one who was ascended and seated at the right hand of God and now on your behalf is interceding. That mediator, this magnificent person makes our condemnation impossible. That's the point of the Apostle Paul. How could anybody uh, condemn when that person, this mediator, is, uh, is your advocate. Now, so that's the, that's the intent of the apostle. That's a, uh, a, well, it's throughout the rest of the chapter. So pick up with me in verse 35. Um, let me read you verses 35 and 36 real quick. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written... For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, guys, remember several weeks ago, I I pointed out in verse 31 that Paul introduces a series of questions. 
Um, for instance, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? There's a series of questions, beginning in verse 31, uh, where Paul is trying to address challenges that might arise to this thing that he's teaching. He's teaching the final perseverance of God's people, their safety, the certainty of their, of their standing. And, and these objections, these challenges are rising, and so he addresses them by raising questions. And he says, all right, who, who's going to bring any charge against God's elect? You know, there's, there's a series of questions. Well, the last of the questions uh, is found in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of God, the love of Christ? Now, guys, before I go any further, there's up to this point, the, the focus of the Apostle Paul is, is there anything that it is possible that would make God change his mind about me? Is there anything out there that, that would ultimately convince God that he had made a mistake and he should have never displayed his love to me? Is there anything possible that would make him change his mind? So he's addressed that over three, uh, three different questions. In verse 35, the focus is different. The focus is not, is there anything that will make God change his mind? The focus is, is there anything possible that would make me change mine? Guys, when, um, when Susie and I first became Christians, um, you know, I was a, I was a, a cake salesman. Um, I worked for Procter & Gamble, and we, we both became Christians in a place where personal evangelism was very, very important. Um, and so early on in our Christian experience, th- we did that all the time. My wife did. I did. I mean, can you imagine Susie Young uh, going to a mall and stopping a complete stranger? At, going to a fire station. Didn't you go to a fire station? Going to a fire station and walking into a bunch of firemen and saying, listen, I got a little religious survey I'd like to conduct with you. Could you? Could? And, you know, then I got two questions. I mean, we, we, we did it all the time. We'd go to malls and we'd sit there and try to stop people and, and engage them in a, in a conversation about Jesus Christ. Um, to my shame, I don't do that much anymore. I, I, I guess in my defense, I would say, as a Procter & Gamble salesman, it's a whole lot easier to talk to people about their, their religion than it is as a preacher. Once they hear you're a preacher, <laughs> walls get, you know, begin to pop up. You can almost hear them being closed and slammed. Back. But early on as a Christian, we really did a lot of personal evangelism. And, uh, and sadly, that is not true today. Of myself or my wife, but primarily of myself. But my point is this. One of the things that I heard a lot when you would present this beautiful gospel of ours that heaven is a free gift, it can't be earned or deserved. Oh, you thought you were going to work for it? Oh, you can't do that. It's a gift. You don't merit it. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You receive it. Because Jesus Christ has died in the place of sinners and he's purchased a place in heaven for us and he's, he offers you, anybody that gift of heaven if they'll take it. And and. On numerous occasions, you'd get people to the point where they were still with you. They were very, very interested. They were, they were, they were somewhat engaged. I mean, maybe more than somewhat. I mean, they were, there was a longing there. But the big concern they had, and I saw it on numerous occasions, was, oh, yeah, I really would, I, I really would like to do this, but, yeah, I, I, I think that 
you know, I, I'm believing what you're saying tonight, uh, Jimmy Young. Yeah, 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 I believe. But my concern is what about tomorrow? I mean, yeah, I believe it tonight. It also makes so much sense. But what happens when school starts in the fall? I mean, will I still believe it then? <clears throat> is there anything out there that is going to make me change my mind? This is not about whether God will change His mind about me. But will I be able to keep this thing going? I mean, can I? Can I? Will I believe next weekend? And then, that's what the Apostle Paul is asking. Who shall separate from... Shall tribulation or distress, distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword... What if life gets difficult? Yeah, 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 Jimmy, I hear what you're saying tonight, and it's all very comfortable here at the fire station. <laughs> but what about, what about if, if things, what if I were to get persecuted? Is it possible that that persecution would make me change my mind? The question that I've got now, Jimmy, is not whether God will fail. My question is, will I fail? And as the result of trial and difficulty and, and, and persecution, will I make it? Is there, is there any force anywhere that can come between me and Jesus? Is there any way that, that I will lose this? Oh, I'm feeling really good right now, Jimmy. And, but what about tomorrow morning when i got to go to work? And the heat gets turned up. Can, uh, can difficulty, can trial make me walk away from this? Will it, will it separate me from the love of Christ? And by the way, that's not... That's, my, not, not, that's not my love of Christ. That's the love of Christ. The one that He possesses for me. Um, His love for me will, um, will not change. But will mine change? Is there, is there something, is there forces out there that will, will make me walk away from this. And, and by the way, I'm going to just jump down to verse 36 real quick and then we'll come back. But it's interesting what the Apostle Paul does in verse 36. Because what he does in verse 36 is quote a passage from Psalm 44. As it is written, uh, for your sake we've been killed all day long. <laughs> um, we are regarded as sheep as, uh, to be slaughtered. What he's, what he's reminding them of is that the Old Testament promises that that stuff that I'm afraid of is going to happen. That stuff that's mentioned up in verse 35, yeah, it's, it's going to happen. And, and by the way, just a couple of quick things, guys. Um, that as it is written, do you see what Paul accomplishes by simply saying that? That is, first of all, he roots his argument in things that have been already taught previously in the Old Testament. But not only does he do that, he also sanctions the authority of the Old Testament by simply saying, yeah, you know what I'm teaching up here in verse 35? 
It was told you in, in back in the Old Testament. Paul sees the Old Testament as, as grounds for authority for his argument in the New. That's huge, ladies and gentlemen. That's huge when the Apostle Paul deals with the Old Testament as if it's something that's authoritative. But now that's kind of a, a, um, an aside. But the, the other thing that you need to understand is, guys, the New Testament, far from ever promising you some kind of life of ease, it promises you the exact opposite. Paul doesn't say, oh, listen, y'all, don't worry about that tribulation and persecution. Oh, it's not going to happen because you come to Jesus and you've done come to Jesus and that means all your problems are over. He never suggests that this concern is not a legitimate concern. That is, that these things aren't going to happen. Oh, they're going to happen, all right? And then he confirms it by saying, oh, yeah, yeah, the Old Testament taught you that. You, you can learn that long before I wrote it to you in the book of Romans because the Old Testament has already told you to expect this. We're killed all the day long. You know, um, far from the New Testament promising you a life of ease, ladies and gentlemen, it, it promises you something other than that. And, and difficulty and persecution and <coughs> trouble and all that business is the, is the normal expectation of the normal Christian life. And one of the great tragedies in, where, in our church and in churches like ours is that we can write a check and avoid a lot of it. The very thing that is needed to kill self-love is the thing that we can pay for to avoid. The thing that will drain us of all of our passion for self-promotion is the thing that we can avoid because we can afford to avoid it. At least much of it. You know, guys, um, do you see those pictures while you're reading? Those people can't get out of trouble like you and I can get out of trouble. Because we can just write a check. We can avoid some of this. Those people can't. But, but, you know, by the way, I, I, last week, this, this just, it just, it staggers me. Last week, someone came up to me afterwards, and I don't know where this question came from. I, I don't think I taught anything about this. But they came up, um, they came up to talk to me about the tribulation. <laughs> and, and, and I don't know what you've been taught. Um, uh, you know, you know, there's, supposedly there's three different, Views of the tribulation. This tribulation is supposed to be this seven-year period of time that the church is, I mean, that this bad stuff is going to happen. And so there's these people that talk about a pre-trib, a mid-trib. This is seven years right here. Um, mid-trib and a post-trib um, rapture. Have you, ever, have you ever heard of that stuff? Have you been taught that? Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry you were taught that. That is utter nonsense. Is there going to be, a, a, you know, is there going to be some kind of rapture where the church is? Yes, it says that in First Thessalonians four. But the very idea that this thing was taught to you—that is, that before the real hard times start, we're going to be taken out and avoid it all. <laughs> At no moment in the history of the Christian church has the Christian church avoided tribulation, but somehow we're better. We're different. 
we're going to get raptured out before. See, I don't like any of this stuff. But the idea that somebody would tell you, oh, no, God is, because we're special here in the 21st century. Oh, yeah. We're not going to go through the hard time. The church has always gone through a hard time, ladies and gentlemen. Always. Forget it. Um, I don't know when it is. I don't know what it includes. But I'm going to tell you this. The church is going to taste it. The church is going to experience it. The church has always experienced it. And that's what Paul is saying, you know, that that's what we promised in the Old Testament. That's what I'm promising in the New. But the point, ladies and gentlemen, the point is not that. The point is, will that make me walk away from the love of Christ for me? That's the question. And then he answers it in verse 37. No. Here's his answer. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loves us. And guys, we need to come back. That's too good to, to race through. But at least you needed to hear the answer to the question. He poses the question in verse 35. He tells you in verse 36, that stuff has been promised to you ever since you read the, the book of Psalms that David wrote centuries ago that you Jews love. I mean, his Jewish audience. Yeah, you got it right there. All that stuff is going to happen. But will it prompt you to walk away from the love of Christ? No. An emphatic no. And not only that, In all that stuff, in all these things, he's referring to the stuff up in verse 35. Shall tribulation or distress, in all that tribulation, distress, and persecution, famine, or nakedness, or danger, and sword, in all that, we're more than conquerors. More than conquerors. Through him who loved us. You're not more than a conqueror because you grit your teeth and you determine that you're Mr. Tough Guy. And you're going to make it through because the rest of them are a bunch of sissies. No, it, it's not going to. It'll never make you walk away from the love of Christ. Because you're going to be a conqueror through Christ who loved you. He didn't desert you at Calvary and he won't desert you now. In fact, He's interceding for you. And when you do that bad thing, which I wish you wouldn't do, and I wish I wouldn't do, when you turn, well, how do you know I'm going to turn? Well, because Jesus prayed for you. When you turn, encourage the brethren. Encourage the rest of us. To know that God is faithful. We'll quit there. Our Father, I do pray that you will assure your people that even as bad as it might happen and our marriages falling apart and our health falling apart and and losing jobs and filing for bankruptcy and being called names because we love the Savior and 
all of that. But none of it, none of it will succeed in eliminating our love for the Savior because it's, because it's through His love for us that we walk through that stuff as more than conquerors. Thank you for these great assurances. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks and good night.